All right. You guys ready for this? Wow. That was surprising because I, I don't know if I am, but we're going to do it. So uh, Acts 1.8 to church and state. So uh, I don't talk about politics in my sermons. In fact, I have had people thank me for that, like <laughs> stop me and say, thank you so much for not talking about politics in your sermons. Um, so I'm going to blow that today. Um, but here, here's what's not going to happen. Let me, because if you're uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable. It's okay. Here's what's not going to happen. I, I am not going to tell anybody how to vote. I'm not going to tell anybody which party to lean towards. I'm not going to set that kind of direction. What I'm going to talk about is the message and the mission of Jesus and how we as Jesus followers, if we call ourselves Jesus followers, how are we to align ourselves with Jesus's message and mission when it comes to political and civic engagement? It's an important question, right? I mean, it's, it's all around us. It's something that... Um, can get people pretty fired up. It's something that really matters um, in, uh, in, a, in a large scale and what happens in our country. So what, what do we do? How do we do this? So we're gonna start with the message and mission of Jesus from Acts chapter one. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. Um, but we're gonna jump in right there because this is our starting point. This is our foundation. I think Jesus sets up really well how we can be aligned with him and, um, and be a part of the world that we live in in a way that honors God. Uh, so here we go, Acts chapter one. If you see anything underlined on the screen, uh, that's your part. You can read that aloud. Here we go. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, so the first book is the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so this is Luke writing um, kind of a sequel to his gospel to this person named Theophilus where he's already explained Jesus' uh, words and works. Verse two, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and... This is nothing new. Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom of God from the time he came on the scene, right? That was his first message. Repent for the kingdom of God is near, right? So Luke is saying... Jesus died, he rose from the dead, all amazing things, and he's still talking about the kingdom of God. His message hasn't changed. Uh, verse four, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but not many days from now. This was good news because when Jesus began to tell the disciples, we see this especially in the Gospel of John, that he was going to be crucified and raised from the dead and then leave. And they kind of freaked out at that. They were like, how are we gonna know what to do if you're not here to tell us what to do? And he said, I got it covered. The Holy Spirit's coming and he'll tell you what to do. So you're still gonna have the presence of God in your lives to guide you. So he's reassuring them that this, this presence is coming, the Holy Spirit's coming. Uh, verse six, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to? That's the big question. Are you at this time gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? This is the hope that all of the Jewish people had when they thought about the Messiah and what the Messiah was going to do, that he would restore the kingdom to Israel. And what they meant by that was, He's gonna come and overthrow our enemies. And our enemy is Rome. So even when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit coming, the disciples are going, 
We remember what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up in the history of our people, amazing things. The Holy Spirit does miracles, amazing. God shows up, crazy things happen. What's the most amazing thing we could hope for right now? For someone to conquer Rome and get them out of here. This is our country. So when they say, when he, he says the Holy Spirit's coming, they're like, yay, is this, is this the time? When you're gonna restore the kingdom of Israel, you're gonna, you're gonna get Rome out of here and you're gonna set this up. Basically, what they were hoping for was a Christian nation. Jesus, you're gonna be the king, you're gonna sit on the throne and, and this is gonna be a Christian nation. And what, why did they think that that was gonna happen? What, what put that in their minds? Um, and were the disciples the only ones who thought this way? No, they weren't. If you remember when Jesus was born, and uh, these magi from the east come and they start asking around, where can we find the king of the Jews? And word gets around to Herod, who was the king of the Jews at the time. And uh, Herod freaks out because these guys are saying there's another king of the Jews here now. And in his mind, that means a political leader. This is somebody who's going to take my throne from me and take my authority from me and take my power from me. So what does Herod do? He has all the baby boys executed because his assumption is the king of the Jews is gonna be an earthly, physical, political leader who is gonna take my throne from me. So the disciples aren't the first ones to think of this. They're not the only ones. This is a pervasive belief in uh, the Jewish culture at this time. So where did they get this? Well, they, they got it from the prophets. There are a lot of prophecies about the Messiah that seem to point to a strong ruler who is going to come and establish the nation of Israel again like it was under King David. When King David was in charge, I mean, everything was great. This is, David conquered all the enemies of Israel, and there was a time of peace and prosperity. And the Jews are looking back a thousand years going, man, if we could only go back to that, that's, that's really what we want. And hopefully the Messiah is going to do that for us. So let's look at one of these prophecies. I'm gonna throw out a few references. If you're interested in looking up some of these prophecies that sort of fueled this belief for the Jewish people, I'm gonna throw a bunch of references out. You can write these down if you're really quick. And then we're just gonna look at one. So Genesis 49, 10, Psalm 2, 7 through 9, 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, Isaiah 42, 1 and 4, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, Micah 5, 2. That's just a few of those. Um, if you didn't get those and you want them, I can give them to you later. But let's just look at one. This is from Psalm 110. Uh, and this was a, a messianic prophecy that many people applied to or they, they interpreted as uh, the Messiah is gonna be a political leader. Here's, here's what Psalm 110 says, verses one and two and five and six. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Conquer all the enemies the Lord will extend your mighty scepter. Scepter represents rule and authority. From Zion, Zion is a hill in Jerusalem, the holy city, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Can you see how the Jews would read this and they would sing this and they would pray this and they would believe that the Messiah was gonna come and be a political earthly leader and sit on a physical throne and restore the kingdom to Israel. So that's what the disciples are hoping. Jesus says, all right, the Holy Spirit's coming. And they go, all right, here we go. We're ready. Let's, let's restore the kingdom to Israel. And so they ask him, is this the time? Listen to Jesus's response. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And Jerusalem and all Judea 
and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus redirects them to a spiritual mission. What they want to hear Jesus say is, you are going to be my soldiers. You are going to be my army. You are going to be my you know, council of advisors. You're going to be my cabinet as I go and set up this new government. But that's not what he says. He says, you will be my witnesses. And not just in Jerusalem, not just in Israel. Jesus says, this mission is not that small. It's not so small that you can combine it to one country and one people group. This mission is for everyone. And you are going to see to it that everyone hears about it. It's a global mission. This was not new. Jesus had been talking about the kingdom of God in ways that people didn't understand from the very beginning when he came on the scene. Uh, Let's look at just one particular uh, interaction he has with Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Rome, a political leader, person in authority. And Pilate is questioning Jesus after Jesus has been arrested. And Pilate has the authority to either have Jesus executed or set free. And so this is the uh, conversation that they have from John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, in Pilate's mind, this is a political statement. Are you someone who is looking to overthrow Rome and sit on the throne of Israel? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But what do you think Jesus is trying to say? My kingdom is not of this world. (laughs) It's really clear. It's not a secret. He's not being mysterious. He's not being cagey. He's he's not like being passive aggressive. He is being very clear. My kingdom is not of this world. I am not the kind of king who's gonna come and try to take your throne from you and kick everybody out. He, he, he basically says, if I were that kind of leader, then I would have raised an army so that when you came to arrest me, what would have happened is my army would have risen up in my defense and there's no way I would have come quietly. But what happened when they went to arrest Jesus? There's like one guy pulls a sword out and goes after, you know, one of these uh, chief priest servants and cuts his ear off. And Jesus looks at him and goes, what are you doing? That, that's not us. That's not what we're about. And he puts the guy's ear back on. He's like, put your sword away. This is not what we're doing. He's, he's like, if I, would, if I were that kind of leader, I would have an army and we would be going to war. But you came to arrest me. You said, Jesus, come with us. And I just came with you. Because my kingdom, let's, let's make no mistake. Jesus says, I am a king and I have a kingdom, but my kingdom is not of this world. And so now he's telling his disciples that that his kingdom is much bigger in scope. Your dreams are too small, he says. Look, this dream of a Christian Israel is too small. What I wanna see is the message of the kingdom of God spread throughout all the world in every culture, in every nation, for every tribe and every tongue. And that was their job. That was their marching orders. And we inherit that mission. We, we who call ourselves Christians today and wear the name of Jesus, we inherit this mission to be his witnesses where we live locally uh, in the region around us and to see to it that the gospel message is carried around the world. And we take that mission very seriously here at Cicero Christian Church. We work hard locally to, to preach and to show and tell the good news to people around us. 
We, we work regionally and in the, around this country and we work around the world. And we send people and we send money to other places around the world to see that the good news about Jesus is carried uh, all over the world because of Acts 1.8. So what does this have to do with uh, church and state? What does this have to do with our political and civic engagement? Um, I just want to ask you to brace yourselves for the next few moments. I'm going to say some things that some of you are going to really like, and you're going to be like, yay, preach it, Coulter. And some of you are going to hear things where you're like, um, can we share, like, can I throw something at him? Like, so there's some Bibles under the pews. You're welcome. Like, if you feel like you can get away with throwing a Bible in church, knock yourself out. Um, here's what I want you to know. My intent is not to offend anyone or to put you in some kind of box or tell you how to vote, like I said, or, or deny you your right to a different opinion. My intent is for us to be a church that aligns ourselves with Jesus, with his message and his mission. And that's it. So what I think um, happens is happening in our country, and it's been happening for a long time, and it's not just our country. I just want you to know this is not a uniquely United States experience. This, is, uh, this happens all over the place. But there are other pathways being presented for Christians when it comes to political and civic engagement that do not align with the way of Jesus. There are other pathways being presented. What, what is happening is... Um, we as Christians, when we hear the word Christian, sometimes uh, if it's whatever that label is attached to, we're like, well, I should be for that because I'm a Christian. So if you call it a Christian movie, I should go see it. And if you call it Christian music, I should listen to it. And if you call, you know, if that's a Christian book, I should read it. And so if you call this a Christian political pathway, I should be on board with it. Well, here's the problem. Uh, there over 70% of people in the United States wear the name Christian somehow. They, they claim some kind of allegiance to Christianity, some kind of connection. And so if you were somebody who was not a Christian, but you were looking to move that group of people who wear the name Christian to your political views, what would you do? You would slap the name Christian on everything, Right? Well, this is a Christian belief system. This is a Christian voting guide. This is a Christian, you know, politician. This is a Christian leader. You would slap the name Christian on everything because you're like, we got to get those 70 plus percent of people who say they wear the name of Christ. So what we need to be aware of is not everything that has the word Christian in front of it aligns with the mission and message of Jesus. Can we agree with that? So how do, we, how do we know? So what I want to do is I just want to address two different pathways that are being presented in, in our specific culture and context that do not align with the way of Jesus. I hope to define those in a way that's pretty much generally accepted. You may not agree with my definitions, but I'm, I'm drawing these from people who study this and show how they don't align with the way of Jesus and why we should be very uh, aware of and resistant to these pathways that are trying to pull us in to leverage us for political power. The first one that we're going to talk about is Christian nationalism, Christian nationalism. Uh, this feels like a new thing. It's not. It's a really old thing. It feels like a United States thing. It's not. It's, it happens all over the world. Um, it's happening in Russia right now. There, there are leaders of the Orthodox Church saying that Vladimir Putin is, is expanding Russia for, for the name of, of God, and we should, if you're a real Christian, you'll be behind him. Like th This is happening all, all over the world. But it happens here in a particular way in the United States. I want to give you some definitions of, of Christian nationalism. Uh, this is from Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead, who are, are scholars. Um, they define it this way. It's an ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic belonging and participation. Uh, okay, if you didn't like that one, let's try another one. This is from Jamar Tisby. 
who defines it this way, Christian nationalism is an ethno-cultural ideology that uses Christian symbolism that creates a permission system for the acquisition of political power and social control. There's a lot of big words in there. <laughs> what he's saying is like it, it kind of just uses uh, the identity of, of Christianity uh, to gain political power. And then this one is from Paul Miller, uh, who uh, has written a lot on this subject. And he, he kind of offers a simplified version. He says, Christian nationalism is, is people who believe um, uh, not only that the United States is a Christian nation, but that it's the government's responsibility to keep it that way. So they would say, not, not only are we a Christian nation, but it is, it is the federal government's responsibility to make sure that we stay a Christian nation and that, and that is how we identify ourselves uh, through all of our, our laws and legal system, justice system, and all of that. Um, some things that Christian nationalists tend to agree with, uh, one is that the federal government should declare the U.S. a Christian nation. A lot of people who uh, adhere to Christian nationalism would agree with that statement. Um, and that the success of the United States is part of God's plan. Um, so here, here's, some, here's some issues. The, the way this gets um, put into practice, and when you hear people talk about this and, and, um, and, and cheer this on, what they're hoping is that if we put the church in charge of the government, that it will be a more comfortable and convenient place for Christians to live and work and do our thing. And so my, my question then would be, what in the New Testament makes us think that we should be pursuing a more comfortable and convenient way to follow Jesus? We just, we just read an entire book, the book of Romans, right? And the book of, uh, not Romans, what did we do? Thank you so much. <laughs> It feels like I did that on purpose. I did not. But anyway, good job. You all pass. Hebrews. And Hebrews was about how hard it was for these people to follow Jesus in their culture. The acknowledgement was it's extremely uncomfortable and very inconvenient to follow Jesus in your culture. Do it anyway. So why would we think that we need a system that makes it comfortable and convenient for us to live as Christians in our culture? Jesus never called us to that. He said, in this world you will have trouble with a capital T, right? So that's one issue that I have with Christian nationalism. There's a grain of truth here that I think draws people in, really well-intentioned people who, who wanna follow Jesus and wanna see our, our country thrive. And, and that is that they would say that Jesus, Jesus used his influence to guide people to righteous living. And that's, that's kind of what we want. If the church was in charge, we could make laws that would pretty much make everybody live like a Christian, and isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus, he used his leverage to influence people to righteous living. You look at the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus shows up at Zacchaeus' house and he's, he's been a traitor to his people and he's robbed his own people to get rich. And after an afternoon with Jesus, he repents of all of that and he gives the money back. And you go, see, Jesus leveraged his influence to make Zacchaeus into a better person. Well, the big miss here is that Jesus actually never leveraged political power to force or coerce anyone to do anything. He, he never forced or coerced anyone to do anything. He didn't use the power. Could Jesus have made people live morally? Yes. Did he even do it with his own disciples? No. No. Right up towards the very end, he's got disciples arguing about who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom, and he's going, 
Have you not listened to anything I've said? That's not what this is about. He didn't even do it with his own disciples. So why would we think that he wants us to do it with our country? So the, the danger here, I, I think, is that we, we, we hear the word Christian attached to this and, and, and we think, um, I, I think one issue is we, we confuse patriotism and nationalism. And we think, well, it means the same thing. Well, they, they don't. I mean, you can look up those definitions, but you can be a patriot without being a nationalist. It's not, it's not the same thing. But we want good things for our country and it's easy to buy into this. Like if only the church had power, right? If only the church had power politically, man, we could get a lot of things done. We could change the laws. We could, we could make immoral behavior illegal. You don't have to spend a lot of time in a history book to realize that the times when the church had power were some of the darkest times of human history. Some of the worst atrocities against humanity have been perpetrated when the church was in charge of the government. And is that really what we think is best? Is that really what we, we want? Have we not learned anything that this is not the way of Jesus? This is not how God brings his kingdom into the world? We just have to hear Jesus's voice echoing in our ears, my kingdom is not of this world. All right, let's move on. Here's, here's another one sort of uh, from a, a, the other perspective that I think uh, tries to put the label Christianity on something and, and draw us into something that doesn't align with the way of Jesus. Um, and that is, it starts with um, a sort of a belief system called progressive Christianity, and it manifests in a political movement that we would call a social justice gospel. So let's talk about progressive Christianity for, for just a minute. Um, let's, let's just use some words from, from the, this camp, uh, the progressivechristianity.org. Uh, they have this list of belief statements and then they kind of say at the end, it's okay if you don't agree with all the words or all the parts, we support your authentic path. So you kind of get a clue there that progressive Christianity is, is pretty soft on truth. The idea that, there, that some things are just true whether, whether you agree with it or not, right? Um, here's some of their belief statements. Uh, this is from a, a progressive Christian church in, in uh Oregon, they say that uh, about the resurrection of Jesus, they say Jesus came alive when they, his disciples, trusted that his love, guidance, support, comfort, and challenge remained with them, even though his physical body did not. So this is an indication. We don't really believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. That's kind of hard to swallow. But Jesus is alive in the sense that we carry on his, you know, beliefs, right? I hope you're aware that that means that, you know, for us, the way that we celebrate Easter um, around here is kind of ludicrous. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then the confetti is a little over the top, right? <laughs> uh, progressive Christianity just shies away from truth claims and advocates that um, in order to love people well, you have to also affirm all of their choices. You have to say all of your choices are valid and right, and that's what love, love means. Um, they say this, uh, that Christianity is the truth for us, but it's not the only truth. So this is what we believe, and you, you can believe something else, and, and whatever you believe is equally valid and, and, and just as uh, legitimate. So progressive Christianity in itself is not a political movement, but it manifests, like I said, in something we call the social justice gospel. And in, in the social justice gospel, all that matters is that we do good, especially for the poor and, and the outcast, the marginalized. Now, here's the grain of truth that, that, that's really a big hook for, for a lot of us. And, and that is, Jesus cared about social justice, didn't he? I mean, what, his first sermon, he said, I came to set the captives free. 
Like this, this is my, I care about the poor. You can't read the Bible without being very convinced that God cares about the orphans and the widows and the poor and the outcasts and the foreigners and the immigrants. And God cares about all of them, that he loves them and he wants us to love them. And so we, we get hooked. We're like, yes, that's, that's what it's all about. But if we swallow that hook, we're also taking in this big miss, which is that Jesus also talked a lot about truth. Like some things are true, whether you agree with it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you want to live by it or not, it's true. In fact, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus was pretty strong on truth. Jesus was pretty strong against sin. He talked a lot about sin and the need for repentance. Jesus was pretty strong about heaven and hell. He talked about that a lot. And progressive Christianity pushes all that aside and says, no, you know what? All we need to do is do good for the poor. And the idea is if, if, if only people like this were in charge, if we could be in charge of the government, man, we could do a lot of good for the poor. But we know the reality is, as we said before, that even when the church is in charge, even when the church is in charge, this is not what happens. Who usually pays the highest price when political power is misused? the poor, the marginalized, the people without power, without a voice of their own. And this system just doesn't lead us to a place where we really get what the kingdom of God is all about. And I think that's the danger. Both of these pathways, Christian nationalism and the social justice gospel, I believe are false gospels that are related to relying on political power to accomplish kingdom purposes. And that's just something Jesus never did and didn't tell us to do. I love this quote from Phil Vischer. You guys remember Phil Vischer, created VeggieTales? He's doing different things now. This is what he said. It's impossible to read the Sermon on the Mount and come away thinking, I need more political power. You guys remember the Sermon on the Mount? Turn the other cheek, right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's impossible to walk away from those statements and go, you know what we need? You know what would be best is if we just took over the world. And that's just not the way of Jesus. It, it, both of these systems that rely on leveraging political power, even for kingdom purposes, first of all, they have a very nef- narrow definition. Both of these systems have a very ne- narrow definition of Christian and church. And so when some people rise up and say, man, it would be better if the church were in charge, you should probably ask the question, which church? Well, my church, obviously, Right? Well, not all churches are the same and not all churches lean the way that you lean. So that would be an important distinction to make. So what are we to do, right? If these two pathways are, are, are false gospels and the way that really the, the media and, and whether that's, that's news media for you or social media or whatever that looks like, just your, your, your networks or however you get your information, what, what, what they're trying to do is, is leverage the Christian political block for very biased purposes. And they divide us, us, people who are united by the blood of Christ, get divided because we become convinced that this way is the way. This is the way. Or this is the way. Maybe it's, the, it's this way on the far right, it's this way on the far left. That's the way. That's how we're gonna get things done. And the whole time, we're basically shouting to Jesus, is now the time you're gonna restore your kingdom to America? And Jesus is going, you are called to be my witnesses. 
This has nothing to do with you leveraging. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just abdicate and step back and do nothing? Or can we be engaged politically in a way that honors God? I'm not gonna answer that question today. (laughs) Uh, It's called a cliffhanger. Come back next week, Andy will answer all your questions. But here, here's what I, I hope that we can align ourselves on. Here's a statement I'm gonna put on the screen and I hope we can align ourselves on this. When it comes to politics or civic engagement, I am a disciple of Jesus and a witness of his message and mission above all other loyalties. Is that something you think we can agree on? Can we stand on that? If we're gonna stand on that, how important is it that we really understand the message and mission of Jesus? Pretty important, <laughs> right? So that's what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. We're going to really dig into this. What, what is Jesus's message? What is his mission? What does it mean to bear witness to Jesus in our local area and all around us and then to the ends of the earth? What does that mean? And how does it mean we're supposed to engage in what's going on in our country? Well, here's a, a, a practical step that you can take if, if, if this is the kind of thing you feel like you need to grow in and be able to have these conversations. Andy will be leading a class um, called Civil Conversations in a Cancel Culture. And for some of you, you're like, no, thank you. <laughs> Not interested in that kind of conversation. Uh, if that's your response, you probably need the class. You probably should go. <laughs> um, but this is just gonna be a practical way to learn some, some tools for how to engage with people in a way that we can honor God and show love and respect each other um, while still having different opinions, right? So I encourage you to check into that class. But as we close today, here, here's, what I, here's what I want for us. I, I think we have to recognize that when the church gets this wrong, we do a lot of damage. Can you agree? I, I don't know how many times I've seen it on social media or I've heard it in real life that um, people say, man, I look at how Christians treat each other on social media. And if that's what Christianity is about, no thanks. I don't want any part of that. Or I see the damage done by people who wear the name of Christian and have power and influence in a political sphere. And if that's what Jesus is about, no thanks. Count me out. Our witness, our salt and light in this world can be very much limited and damaged when we get this wrong. So it's really important that we get it right. This is not just for our sake. So we have a a clear path forward individually. Oh, I think that's important. But this is for the sake of those who don't know Christ. This is for the sake of those that we want them to look at how Christians engage and go, I may not agree with all of your opinions, but I can get behind the way you treat people. Isn't that what we want? So let's take this conversation seriously. Let's pray about it as we close. Would you stand? Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he is a king and that he has a kingdom and that his kingdom is not of this world, that we get a chance to participate in your rule and reign when we engage with people and with our culture in the way that Jesus showed us. So as we go through this journey, Father, would you please shape us by your Holy Spirit to think like you think, to desire what you desire and to do things that honor you and point people to Jesus. If that means, Father, that we need to cut away some parts of our heart or we need to set aside some opinions that we've held, then so be it. God, may we do what honors you above all other loyalties. 
for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go and be salt and light to a world that desperately needs the hope of Christ. God bless you.